Revelation chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 20, starting in verse 9, and going to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of God. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are Beloved people of God, we look first of three parts at this last chapter one, Christ among the lampstands, with the theme John encounters Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands or the seven candlestick. Our text for today presents for us a very graphic, very colorful vision of Christ. It presents to us his majesty, his rule, his judgment, his authority, his sovereignty, 
his power. And you know, it's interesting, is it not, that there are twin emphases, two emphases in this book of Revelation. And the first, as we have noted, is Jesus Christ himself. And we see that, of course, very clearly here. But at the same time, accompanying, as it were, this picture of Jesus is his church. We're going to, when we come into chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see the Lord Jesus in the midst of the candlesticks, walking in the midst, and giving messages to each of these seven churches that are named. And so we see his church as well in union with him, united with him. Even as we read in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. And so in union with him. And indeed, suffering with him. But also being victorious in him as well. So chapter 1 then is setting the stage for our consideration of this entire... It's setting the stage. What kind of a savior is Jesus? And furthermore, what should be the character of the church, the nature of the church? Well, we know from scripture as a whole that the church is to be holy. That is to say, called out, set apart for God's service. It is to be one and Catholic. Now, when I say Catholic, I'm using it with a small c. Catholic simply means universal. Catholic is not Roman Catholic. It simply means universal. It is one, the church is one, and it is universal. In other words, it has the same experience, if you will. We go through the same procedures in terms of salvation. We go through the same, basically the same experiences in terms of suffering for Christ and ultimately ruling with him. Yes. Having our sins forgiven in him. And so it is one and Catholic. The church is faithful in testimony. As we see here, the testimony of Jesus Christ. church is going to suffer for that. Well, the church, by doing so, is itself bearing testimony. It is faithful in testimony, even unto death. Even unto death. All the martyrs throughout the centuries, not willing to bow before Caesar when he is asserting that he is God or Lord, but saying there is one Lord, and it is Jesus Christ. We recognize your rule, Caesar, for the civil realm. We do not recognize that you are God. And so faithful in testimony even to death. It is spirit-filled. It is spirit-filled. And we're going to see this in verse 10, for example. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And it is distinctive. Again, set apart, it's distinctive as seen today in our text with regard to Sabbath observance. Now we're distinctive in other ways, are we not, as we'll look at. We're distinctive in terms of our ethics, our morality, including our sexual ethics and morality, 
such that the world thinks we are very strange for not agreeing with all these bizarre ideas that are out there today. But the church has always stood apart from the world. It's not like the kinds of things we see going on today have not been there in the past. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Rome. Look at Pompeii. We're buried by Vesuvius, such that when that that in AD 79, such that when Pompeii was excavated by the archaeologists, the archaeologists had to cover over some of the graphic pictures so the workmen would not be tempted sexually. There's nothing new under the sun, and the church has always been distinctive, but. As we say here, it's distinctive in terms of Sabbath observance. Why, why are we here today? Children, why are you here today? I hope you're glad to be here. I hope you're, you're delighted to be here. You better be. I hope so. Because it is the Lord's Day and it's His church. That's why we're here. And that's something that is distinctive for those that are a holy people called out. So we see in, our, in this passage then, there are three parts. John hears, John sees, and John submits. But today we'll be looking just at verses 9 through 11. John hears, John hears. Notice the description. He says, I myself, John. Obviously this is the Apostle John, as we've been talking about him the one that wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, the one that was beloved particularly by Jesus, the one who leaned on his breast, I, myself, John, but notice he doesn't pull rank here. He doesn't say, you know, I was all, I'm all these great things. What does he say? Both your brother and companion. Your brother. He's not too proud to be identified as one of the brethren your brother, and companion or fellow partaker. Again, he's identifying himself with the flock. Fellow partaker in the tribulation, in the tribulation, and kingdom, and patience or perseverance in Jesus. Tribulation. Let's look at that just for a second. You know, the Lord promised that his followers would be persecuted. That's what we read from John 15, the last part of that chapter. He promised it was going to happen. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. It's a guarantee. And so, tribulation, what's interesting though here, is that the article, it's not just in tribulation, it's in the tribulation, and so apparently there was a particular tribulation, troubling of the church, persecution that was going on at that very time. But also fellow partaker in the kingdom. The kingdom is the dynamic manifestation of God's rule. So he rules over all in general terms and has forever ruled over all. And yet, when used, particularly in the New Testament, when it talks about the kingdom, it's saying there's something dynamic. There's, there's a thrust to it, if you will, in terms of the invasion of Satan's dominion, so that Satan, as, as Jesus would say, 
binds the, uh, is, is the strong man who is bound by Jesus so he can plunder Satan's kingdom. That's the sort of picture that you have here. Remember also, as we saw from last week, that we are kings and priests before him. And so the kingdom, but also the perseverance, the patience or the perseverance in Jesus. God's preserving power as well as human endurance. And all of this, did you notice? All of this is in union with Jesus Christ. I am doing all these things in union with Jesus Christ. We suffer with him in order that we might reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. So, that's who John is. Your brother, your fellow partaker. But notice his position. It is on the island of Patmos. Patmos. P-A-T-M-O-S, Patmos. This is a small island. It's about 13 square miles. It is rocky. It is volcanic. Volcanoes there. Tall hills and lowland areas. It would have mild, a mild winter and cool summers. Little rain, interestingly. It was in the Aegean Sea near Lesser Asia, or we would say Asia Minor, or today we would say the country of Turkey. And by the way, this is where political and religious troublemakers were sent by the Roman Empire. So if you were a political troublemaker, a religious troublemaker, and you weren't killed, this is where you would be sent into exile. And so there he is on this island of Patmos. Notice what he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, because of his Christian faith, because of who he is as a believer in Jesus, because of his faith in Christ. Notice two things here, though. First of all, because of the word of God, that is to say, we would say the scriptures, the Bible, which of course is inerrant and infallible and inspired, is also that which is verbal. It comes in words. It is, a, it is revelation in words. And so we have all kinds of statements in scripture, all of which are true. And of course, they all of which follow logically as well. And so we find then, because of the word, the Logos, the word of God, but also the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ. Because of the proclamation of his rule and his saviorhood. Because of the proclamation, because of the testimony, testifying as to who Jesus is, in contrast to Caesar's claims to deity, to godhood, Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus is also the Savior. He is the only Savior. And now it's very interesting, called Columbus and Cortez, Conquerors for Christ. 
very interesting book. In contrast, all the lies we're being told today about Columbus and, and so forth. But one of the things, and I'm not excusing, of course, all that those men did or believed, but one of the things that is, um, that is very interesting, as they went to, as Cortez went to Mexico City, was dealing with Montezuma, you know, they were, the, the Spanish were absolutely horrified by, the, by what they discovered, by the, the um, uh, all, all of the, the sacrifices, even the cannibalism, and so forth. And so Cortez tried to proclaim that, no, these, these are false gods. There's one true and living God and one Savior, Jesus Christ. And at one point, it appears that Montezuma was willing to accept the God of the Spaniards as long as he was just one God among many. But you see, that's the point. There is only one God, and there is only one Lord. And so it's because of that testimony, that bold testimony of Jesus Christ concerning his rule and his Savior, the world cannot stand it. And therefore, the world persecutes us. But his position was not only on Patmos and not only in terms of his being persecuted, but notice what it says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In the spirit, or literally I became. And it seems to imply, in this case at least, a, a sort of state of, of a prophetic ecstasy, of being lifted up, if you will. But notice what he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. But we also know the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. The Christian Sabbath. This is one of the passages which teaches that we are to worship on the first day of the week, no longer on the seventh day. The fourth commandment, as you know, being part of the Ten Commandments, is binding universally being part of the moral law of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The question is, in the New Testament era, which day of the week should it be? Well, all four Gospels, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, record that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it was on the first day of the week. In Acts 20, verse 7, in Troas, where, you remember where Eutychus, the young man, fell out the window because he, you know, fell asleep during the sermon? So, children, don't do that, please. He fell asleep. He fell, and, but of course, you remember that, that Paul was able to, to go and to raise him from the dead. But the gathering of the church was on the first day of the week. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, we are told on the first day of the week to bring all the, all the collection, the tithes, the, into the storehouse, as it were. Because that was the day of the week on, in which, on which the church was meeting. And that's what you find here. When it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, very clearly, John was not referring to the Jewish Sabbath. He was very clearly referring 
to the first day of the week. And so he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. But notice, therefore, the connection between spirit and Sabbath. Between spirit and the Sabbath. The Lord's day is the day for worship. And it is the time to be caught up with heavenly things, with heavenly realities, with into the spiritual realm, as it were, that you don't think about or engage in worldly business or recreations. That's the point. Because in a special and a heightened way, if you will, you're in the spirit on the Lord's day. It is to be a day of joy. And it is the Lord's day. It is focused on him and his work, particularly his resurrection, so that we remember the resurrection of Jesus, not one or two times a year, but 52 or occasionally 53 times a year, as the Lord has given us the Lord's day for his worship. You know, what's interesting as well, when you look at Isaiah 58, 13 and 14, it's very interesting, the connection here. Isaiah 58, if you would like to turn there with me, that's fine. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. Let me read this for you. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath of delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That riding on high places, that's a picture of victory. That riding on high places, it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of victory, of conquest. And we do that through Christ. And victory, of course, is in many ways the theme of this entire book of Revelation. But here you see how it's tied in with the Sabbath. For not only do we take dominion what we do kings and priests, but also by means of Sabbath observance. And most importantly, that victory, of course, comes not through our own works, ultimately, but through what Christ has done for us. And so we have, then, this picture of John, this description of John, and now we look, or we, we, we read here, in terms of what John hears. Verse 10. And I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet. A voice as great as a trumpet. Now, a trumpet in Scripture signified a festal proclamation, a party, if you will, a, a, a feasting or a divine manifestation, as in 1 Thessalonians 4, when the trumpet sounds when Jesus returns. And so there's a, a pronounced
call now hear this. There's calling attention, just like you you hear the the sirens go off, warning uh, either uh, in terms of a nuclear bomb on the way, hopefully not that, or tornado. That's the picture that you have here. That's the sound that you have here. This is a loud voice calling attention to a great happening. But notice what the voice says. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I'm the first letter of the alphabet. I'm the last letter of the alphabet. I am from A to Z. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. And Jesus also says, write in a book what you see. See, God's revelation is going to be given to John. It's going to be in words, but in order to in order to make sure those words are preserved, they are going to be written down. So it's verbal, it's in words, and particularly it is inscripturated. It is written down in scripture. It is given here for the future generations presented in written form. He says, Jesus says, send it to the seven churches. This revelation of Jesus, like all the Bible, is intended to build up the saints. And here particularly, immediately, these seven churches. Now, as we've seen, the number seven is quite significant. It keeps on appearing in the book of Revelation. It is the number of perfection or completeness. How many days of the week, children? Seven. Six regular days and then one Sabbath day. The Trinity, three persons. The number for the earth, like the four corners of the earth, is four. And so three plus four is seven. Now these particular churches that are named here are all of them in the most important cities of Asia Minor, or today we would say the southwestern part of Turkey. And as we go through them, you will notice something very interesting. Again, I'd urge you to look at a map later, ask children, ask Miss, Miss Amy or Miss Penny to show you later, or maybe a map in the back of the Bible. These are going in order. They're forming a rough circle going clockwise. So if you start, so going from the southwest and going around to the southeast. So if you start on a, the uh, face of a clock, about 7 o'clock or so, 7, 7.30ish or so, and you go around like a circle, you end up around where the number 5 is on the face of a clock. That's what we are. So we're going southwest around the circle up to 12 and back around to 5 to the southeast. Now I have three points of application and the first is this. My friends, be prepared to suffer persecution. Be prepared. Be ready to suffer persecution. We've already seen some of our brethren even in Canada being put in jail recently. Ministers being put in jail for trying to meet for public worship. That's persecution. They're not killed yet, thankfully, 
but it's still persecution. Church, why, why are we persecuted then? I would suggest two reasons. The first is that of hatred. Hatred by the devil and hatred by the world. As we've already mentioned, the world rejecting our message of the gospel. The world wants nothing to hear about that. They do not want to hear about the lordship of Christ. They do not want to know about our piety or devotion or morality, which they often would view as harmful. And so there's hatred by the world and by the devil. But also, there's another aspect to this at the same time, and that is purification. Purification purifying, putting us through the fires of persecution. God doing that. Using the, the hatred, using the, the sinfulness of man at the same time to purify his people. God sovereignly, you see, directs the persecution. Do you think that the one that the Lord Jesus, who's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, do you think he's not in charge? Of course he's in charge. And he's even in charge of the times when we are persecuted. God is sovereignly directing the persecution of the church in order to purge us of the dross, to get all that garbage out of our lives, just like gold being purified by going through the fire. Even so, we too often must go through the fires of persecution. God, furthermore, puts us through the fire to test us as to whether we really believe these truths. You ever think about that? What are you willing to die for? Well, it's very easy to say, well, of course, of course I would die for Jesus. Really? What happens, children, when you are persecuted, when you are ridiculed, and so forth? Are you really willing to stand for Jesus at that time? And so you see, God puts us through the fire to test us to see whether we really believe these truths or not. And he also purges the church thereby of unbelievers, those who don't really believe but are merely faking it. This persecution may take various forms, pressure, ridicule, fines and imprisonment, loss of job, separation from family, as John here was separated on the Isle of Patmos, torture, and even death. Be prepared, my friends, as our brothers and sisters today in China and in other places throughout the world, in Eritrea, in numerous other places we could think of, are suffering today for the cause of Christ. Be prepared to suffer persecution. Number two, are you in the Spirit? Are you in the spirit? Now there's a subjective side to this, to be sure. And so we, we want our spirits, as it were, to be stirred up with 
love for God. So there's very much a subjective side in, the, in terms of this. It can even be emotional. But there's also an objective side as well. Because how is it that you are able to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? Through the means of grace. Through the means by which God conveys His grace to you. Through the Word and sacraments and prayer. And yes, through Sabbath observance. You want to be in the Spirit? Keep the Lord's Day holy. So are you in the Spirit? And thirdly, never forget that to be in the Spirit is to be in Christ. To be in the Spirit is to be in Christ. These means of grace are merely tools. They're not ends in themselves. They're merely tools. They're merely methods by which we can lay hold on Christ and the grace found in Him. Because you see, my friends, all of these things are focused on Christ. All of these things are focused on the one who cries with a loud voice as of a trumpet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Have you with the ears of faith heard what John heard? May God give you the grace to hear. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit indeed would be at work in our hearts and lives, enabling us, O God, to love our Savior all the more, to be submissive to him, and more than that, to rejoice him, to hear him. O Lord, may we long for the day when we hear the Son of Man speaking in our hearing. May we in the meantime hear him as he speaks through the word of God. For we pray in his name. Amen.